0: You are listening to the Religica Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. Today, Center Director Dr. Michael Trice speaks with Seattle University President Eduardo Peñalver about the importance of his new presidency at SU, about how the university curriculum works to foster a higher empathy IQ in society, and about looking forward.
1: Take a listen. You know, the listener should know you're the first new president at Seattle University in 24 years. You're the first lay president in 130 year history of the university, and you're the first person of color to serve as president of this university. And these evolutions at the university are not accidental to the future of university life in the U.S. or to the role this university can play in the heart of an active, civically minded region. How is your leadership at SU today? In in any way you'd like to answer, demonstrative of where the university needs to be headed in the city, in the country, and in the world. Thinking about the mission
0: of the university and, and the mission of the Society of Jesus as one of engagement with the world, I, th- I think there are some advantages to lay leadership in in carrying that out in, in the environment that we find ourselves in here at Seattle University. And, and I see you know, my role in that regard as kind of translational. And it may be that a layperson has some some perspectives to offer on that. You know, I think we could talk about some of the same changing demographics, right? Higher education is uh, much more diverse today than it was 30 years ago when I entered college at all levels. Uh, the student body is dramatically more diverse. This is true at every kind of institution, um, you know, and um, it's less true, I would say, in uh, the more senior ranks of university administration um, and and faculty life. So it having you know having a person of color in the role of president, I think, is in that respect forward looking and um, and I think something that is in keeping with Seattle University's identity as a place that's forward looking and progressive. So. You know i i think it's the case that some of the the life experiences i've had as a person of color and and um uh, as an academic um who happens to be a person of color will will have an impact on how i evaluate things and make decisions as a president as well
1: there's a lot of reasons to as you're describing to be the kind of president that's necessary for the moment and and maybe you know we could say a word about about that moment in terms of the societal divisions the, the testing of our uh, social contract within our sense of democracy you, know, you might express that differently but how are we preparing students to meet that divisive world and and what do you say to, to, to parents or students themselves or faculty and others about about our approach today that's so essential I think it's a really
0: challenging task you know to prepare students for for this really polarized divisive society that we you know, that increasingly yeah. they're going to be entering into after they leave the university. And I think we have to walk a line between two goals that can pull in different directions to some extent. I mean, one is uh, the, the the need, the imperative to create a climate for our students that is, uh, creates a sense of belonging and, and, um, and um, for all of, you know, students from all backgrounds, especially backgrounds that were historically under, underrepresented in higher education or marginalized in higher education, um, that that requires one set of actions and approaches. And then at the same time, helping them develop the skills to engage with people in the broader society who are going to have you know, vastly different approaches and, and perspectives. Um, and I think to be able to do that effectively, you have to be able to understand those perspectives, whether even the ones that we really strongly disagree with, and to some extent empathize, because I think you can't really have dialogue unless you can, unless there's empathy or some some shared sense of our common humanity. And so it, it you know, it, it. I think that requires to some extent engagement and exposure with viewpoints that are not, you know, the viewpoints that institutionally that we agree with. So it's it's. Um, mm. I think those two things pull in, in different directions. And, uh, you know, as a coming out of a law school environment, it it was, you know, we, we had a strong kind of sense that we in the law school world, that it's a, you know, the the legal profession is, a it's a discursive profession. It's an argumentative profession. And so that provides a, a kind of touch point for thinking about these issues. We want to create an inclusive, welcoming environment for our students. We need to teach them, um, skills of, Persuasion and argumentation, and and so that requires exposing them to a whole range of views and arguments that that they may find objectionable. But it's part, an important part of the professional training. I I, I kind of think that same logic, which is very natural within the the law school world, applies to a liberal education generally. That you know that we need we need to find room for uh, productive disagreement, mm. and you know on campus as part of
1: the educational mission, preparing students to. To go out into a world where not everyone agrees. Maybe just a, another moment on this, this uh, question of raising the kind of empathy IQ. And there's a lot of scholarship right now about empathy exhaustion that's out there. But, you know, here we are in a university where we We pride ourselves on a form of discernment. I think directly, as you just described, a kind of empathy, discursive way of approaching knowledge and a deeper understanding and awareness of those around us. Uh, Discernment, Ignatian discernment. What do we do in those places where we recognize that we're Balkanized, we don't agree. Maybe even the starting points in culture or society right now are places where we're not able to form agreement. It's tough. How do you approach that as a lawyer, as as a professor, as a president of a university? What are your thoughts? On it that? is the. It is the. I think it is one of the great one of the great
0: challenges we face as educational institutions right now. It's very easy in the current climate to seek out the perspectives that that you know that are comfortable and to be pretty dismissive of the people you disagree with. I find myself falling into that all the time. One way to push yourself is to read things. You know, kind of seek out things that you don't expect to agree with. So I, I, I try to do that with my, my especially my news reading. Um, it's interesting, you know, a lot of stuff is not, what I find is um, when you kind of venture across the the media landscape, you know, we often talk about kind of losing a shared sense of facts. I, you know, I think that, that there, there's some truth to that, but I, what I find really more interesting, it, it's not that the things that are being reported in this or that outlet are not factual. It's, it's really more what people... Choose to report on mm-hmm. or choose to ignore. So it's more the agenda-setting function and like what what people find important and interesting and 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 what they choose to to not think or or talk about. It's the stories that aren't present on Fox News that are as interesting as what it is they're reporting. But but they're often not when they're reporting. They're not misrepresenting facts. It's just they're emphasizing a, a certain line of reporting that that has a it has a, a valence to it. But it but the facts remain to a certain extent common i think it's, so that's what that's an interesting thing about our current environment now there are obviously there are parts of media landscape where there is just misrepresentation and, and misinformation but i you know that it's kind of easier to think about what to do with that i, I think it's harder to think about what to do mm-hmm. with just you know people who don't want to engage with certain facts that are inconvenient to to their per, personal perspective and i think that's true across the that's that's mm-hmm. something that that you see across the The political landscape and the and the fragmentation of the media environment today makes it easy to stay isolated from from uncomfortable conversations. So so pushing yourself outside that comfort zone, I think, is really is a helpful exercise. And again, I think as, you know that's easy for me to say as a as a university president. I think it's harder to know what to do. How do we foster that you know on campus, and how do we encourage people to be adventurous and uncomfortable? While we're trying to make yeah. them comfortable. <laughs> so it's like, um, they how do you how do you structure that in ways that are that are productive and not not alienating? That's a real that's a challenge. I don't have a I don't have a magic answer to that. And I think it, it really depends. It's gonna differ a lot based on the age of the students we're talking about and what they've chosen to study. And um so the different ways to approach that probably from within different disciplines.
1: Well, and I wonder, you know, as you're looking at the curriculum, I wanna ask you about that because understand as you've come into kind of the reigniting campaign, really rethinking our curriculum in a way that includes greater inclusion that that I, in many ways doubles down on the kind of empathy that's essential, uh, you know, to the future. And there may be something countercultural to, you know at, at SU that the emphasis on the whole the whole person in a culture of inclusion. I mean, there's what we're asking people to do perhaps, is to is to not live in a state of partiality, like get an understanding of the people and the events around you. and, and be okay with being not just uncomfortable but perhaps wrong you know and that that being wrong and failing forward is also okay is there something in particular about the curriculum meeting the challenges even just some that we've talked about that you've said you know this is for me as the president the inspired idea or set of ideas these are the things that matter to me in this curriculum in terms of of facing these challenges and that that place us on a footing where uh, you know the public good and the commons is always before us where's your wonder and hope around that or if I may say you know what keeps you up at night you know what's the thing that you say this this matters this matters most to me in this curriculum uh, It's a great question I, I
0: you know there are <clears throat> I don't know if this is responsive or not I, I think there are two two things you know one that I think is exciting and the, the other one and maybe the one that keeps me up at night which is is a challenge but I think it's one that I hope that we can grapple with you know so the I think the thing, the thing that's exciting to me is to think about the interconnection between these three challenges. So we talk about the challenge of widening economic inequality, racial inequity, climate change and sustainability, and um, accelerating really uh, technological change, and you know the, all the attendant impacts on on opportunity and on, on social trust and democracy. And these things, you know, are just kind of there are all these connections. Between them and getting getting a sense of that the interconnected nature of those challenges, I think is an opportunity for our curriculum, and, the, and it and it's uh, furthered by I think the emphasis that we've put in the process on interdisciplinary engagement with those challenges, and and my hope is that the conversations that come out of this process will lead lead our curriculum to have curriculum to have this sort of fractal quality where. You have these three challenges that are operating you know, at the level of the, the shared curriculum that, that our students will all experience. But then those challenges come to play a role within the different majors, within, within individual courses, that you get this kind of self-similarity that replicates itself at different scales within the curriculum because of those generative conversations that we had about the, the shared curriculum so that that's kind of an exciting thing about thinking thinking through the curriculum at this at this level of ambition at this time that i think the challenge the thing that keeps me up at night is just you know not wanting to uh just replicate how this is done everywhere you know that we that that we add something different as a as a jesuit and catholic institution that is committed to uh, an identity as uh, you University that's progressive and innovative, that's committed to social justice in a in a distinctively Jesuit way. That this looks different here when we talk about economic inequality and 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 racial equity here. Uh, to go back to your your point about empathy, you know, it ought to we ought to reach different endpoints you know because we're we're approaching this as a as a Jesuit and Catholic institution with different you know different inputs as well so it should be countercultural a little bit but in a good way and 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 again in ways that are that cut across some of the the polarizing nature of of the present moment you know one of the one of the insights of ignatian spirituality one of the sort of the starting points of the spiritual exercises right is You know, coming to recognize that we are all sinners and and yet loved by God, like if that's our starting point, then what does a conversation about racial equity look like? We talked about the space for recognizing where we're wrong. And if we want people to feel like they can they can take that step. Right. We also then need to respond to that recognition with with empathy and, and with love. That, that that sense of like we're all on a journey here very I think is central to to Je- Jesuit spirituality. and so that, that that should inform how we how we think and talk about these things on a, on a, on a campus like Seattle
1: University. And maybe we could talk a little more about this. this this sense of the the fractal quality, as you noted, it, in terms of the challenges we're we're facing and and the challenges those have to the commons, our sense of forum uh, and to the kind of societal disequilibriums we see today. Perhaps discernment is also about, and at the heart of interdisciplinary studies, be that in law or engineering, philosophy or religion or business, that that wisdom uh, arrives also in fractal form. Like we need interdisciplinary studies because how we understand uh, those shared commons, how we understand justice, how we understand a kind of deeper abiding wisdom, even unity itself perhaps requires multiple disciplines to respond to those challenges. And maybe that is fractal, but I mean, thank God for the commons, right? Because that provides an opportunity to hear one another also in a university. And I mean, ultimately, maybe it comes down to how we see ourselves in the world and how we you know, love and care for our neighbor, whoever they may be, and that all these disciplines are trying to get at that in one form or another by providing opportunity, by providing a deeper lens, by correcting societal discrepancies and injustices. Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that?
0: One of the values that universities generally bring to our society is or ought to be, I don't know that we always achieve this, but is the is the the possibility for engagement across a, a whole range of kinds of diversity, you know, of intellectual endeavor, of interest, of identity. Universities are the most diverse communities in our society. Certainly the most diverse residential communities, um, even just just narrowly looking at categories of identity. But then if you if you add to that all the diversity of intellectual interest and endeavor that's that's going on in the university community, then then the the, the richness of the conversations that can happen on campus are going to just be orders of magnitude greater than than what's possible in other settings. If we structure those conversations appropriately so that people feel empowered to to express themselves, to make themselves heard, but then also, you know, feel enough confidence to to listen, and, you know, and then hopefully that can contribute to the way those conversations can happen, you know, in the broader in the broader community. And I, like I said, I don't know that we we're, we're always getting this right, and you know, there a lot of been been a lot of attention on on places where universities have fallen short in that regard in recent years, but. Uh, but I do think there's the possibility, right, of, you know, the, the, there's an imperative for universities to get that right just by, na- by virtue of the, the nature of the communities we are. There's also just the, the, the possibility of when it goes right, it being generative um, in ways that wouldn't be possible in other kinds of communities.
1: You have this other part of your professional aptitude I just want to ask you about in terms of the, the axis of law and religion. And we, we learn a lot from one another. In this time, but we also experience a time where religion is used as a foil for a lot of aggression. See so the rise of populist groups, for instance, who are using religion in one form or another to justify uh, their own ends. What's the challenge in how religion is used publicly that that, that concerns you the most? And you know, what's the one that you're thinking about?
0: Well, it's interesting to see how the conversation about religious—I'll I'll just say religious freedom—because that's the that's the way that this tends to get discussed these days, but that conversation has shifted over time. So when I, when I was in law school, the way that religious freedom was discussed was typically in terms of small religious minorities, uh, and their ability to exercise their religion when it came into conflict with majority decision-making. So, you know, the, the leading case at the time was, um, a case called Employment Division versus Smith, which involved the you know someone who had lost a, lost a jo- lost a job, and because of his uh, use of peyote uh, ceremonially, and constitutional doctrine made it very challenging for minority religious groups to um, prevail in those kinds of claims, and and then that led to the, you know the enactment of a bunch of state laws and a, mm-hmm. a, a federal law that tried to create a more a more permissive test, you know that would allow um, courts to to mandate exemptions from generally applicable regulatory mm-hmm. systems when they kind of came up against these, what were I think always conceived of as, as minority religious, you know, views, you know, it was, it was, it was always these groups like the kind of the Amish or Hasidic Jews or, um, Native American, um, uh, spiritual traditions that would, you know, just come into conflict with these broader regulatory structures, um, public school, uh, systems and things like that. And, um, Anyway, that was the way it was framed, and then increasingly now, it's I think what you see is um, that structure, those those that more permissive approach that that state legislatures implemented in response to to the Smith case, um, getting deployed on behalf of uh, large and fairly influential religious communities. You know, this has gone along with a tendency of you know what I would call the you know the majority religion, you know Christianity in the United States to, to describe itself as beleaguered or under assault, you know, or or being oppressed by uh, a kind of secular uh, outlook in, you know, that's prevail, prevailing in the wider society. So this tendency to sort of, 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 Christians to see themselves as a, as an oppressed minority within the United States. And then so deploying these, these doctrines to, to try to avoid complying with, Broadly applicable regulations, like uh in the case of same-sex couples, uh, you know, anti-discrimination laws, or in the case of contraception, you know, the contraception mandate in, in the, the Affordable Care Act. And the conservative position has shifted now on the court, you know, to to a real sympathy for religious minorities, but now recast uh as, as a Christian you know, the court has been very reluctant to really probe the sincerity of religious beliefs. So people say they believe something, you know, the court, you know, there there are limits to this, but they by and large don't want to probe the sincerity of what people say they believe. They, they, uh, courts also don't enforce orthodoxy within a religious perspective. So if uh, there's a famous case um, uh, involving a a Jehovah's Witness who claimed to, um, you know, that being a Jehovah's Witness meant that Uh, He couldn't work in a in a factory uh, producing armaments. This was disputed by others within that religious community who said, no, that would be okay." You know, they're not allowed to participate in in the military, but uh, they could could work in a factory, you know, civilian factory producing armaments. And the courts just said, we don't really, we don't assess the orthodoxy of the view. If someone says, this is my view, right, then we accept that that's a, a sincerely held religious view. And and um, even if it's not the one mandated by their faith, we're not going to adjudicate that. You know, you see some of this coming out in response to Catholics claiming the uh, an exemption, religious exemption from uh, the vaccine mandates, even though or even in the Catholic Church have said you should take the vaccine. So if you combine those two things with a really permissive test that that doesn't put a thumb on the scale against uh, religious exemptions and you have the makings for some real difficulty enforcing any generally applicable norm and then you add to that also the fact that in in the hobby lobby case the court said that corporations can express a religious point of view and now all of a sudden you know it's it's just very hard to reach a shared sense of what uh, what democratic government can do i I do think that universities are a place where those conversations, are uniquely capable of of happening, right? In part because because of our shared commitment to the academic enterprise and to intellectual engagement. And if they
1: can't happen, if those conversations can't happen on a university campus, then they can't happen anywhere. Let's end where we began with this new presidency. What's next? And what are you looking forward to? Uh, As you started with following a president who was in this role
0: for 24 years and was in many ways the face of Seattle University to this community, but I think that's an opportunity also to reintroduce Seattle University and, and, and maybe elevate elevate some other voices and, and so that there's not just one face of Seattle University, that there are there are many faces of Seattle University. But we all but what we share is a, a common set of commitments and um to this vision that we have of being an innovative and progressive Jesuit and Catholic university and, and but to to and, and to everything that kind of goes along with that in terms of our the, the rigor of our thinking and so so I'm trying to kind of, as you know, as a new person, new member of this community, new person in 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 the wider community, to to be thoughtful about how I do that and make sure that in in all my engagement outside the university that I'm that I'm representing Seattle University well, but also bringing in the bringing in those other voices and and bringing people along. That's great. That's um, yeah. Thank you for that. And uh, thanks for joining this conversation. No, it's it's uh, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to be at Seattle University and I feel like I'm uh, learning things every day which is what i like to be doing. It's it's just a great it's a great community, a tremendous amount to offer and so I feel really privileged to be in a position, to, you know, to guide us forward. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.